Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading is from John chapter 17, verses 6 to 19. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that, they may, so that they may have the full measure of my joy with them, within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. In the run-up to the D-Day landings, I imagine a number of people were wondering what the plan was. You see, very few people were actually in the know. You know, the people who knew what was going on were the top politicians and the top generals. Uh, but most of the ordinary public didn't know what was happening. Perhaps in, you might have seen some, uh, some, some things going on. You might think, oh, what, what is this? You know, if you lived in the South, you might have seen lots of troops gathering. You might have bumped into an American regiment, perhaps, and thought, mm, something's going on. But generally, you, you wouldn't have known. In fact, there were some strange things going on as well that might have confused. You know, there were, there were sort of false messages put out to confuse the Germans or uh, uh, troops sent to, to, to some strange locations. And, you know, an ordinary person might have been looking and thinking, what is going on? What's the plan? Is there even any joined up thinking between the politicians and the generals? Well, imagine one day you were invited to come in to the cabinet war rooms. This is the place where all the planning happened. And uh, you were invited in, and the, the military generals were there, and the political leaders were there, and you were told, look, just have a seat, uh, watch, listen in, because we're going to be discussing the plan for the invasion of Europe. Well, imagine that. I mean, it would be so interesting, wouldn't it, to, to hear what the plan is. And it would be so reassuring to know that there is a plan, and so exciting to think, well, this might just work. Can you imagine having that kind of insight? Well, in John chapter 17, we are invited into God's planning room. 
his war cabinet. We get to listen in to a conversation between the father and the son about what their plan is. Pete explained last week that this whole chapter is Jesus praying to his father. And as we think about it, he could have done this in private, but he chose to pray in front of his disciples so that they could hear what is going on. And because it's written down, we get to listen in too. Now the plan, it comes in three phases. Last week we saw phase one, it's that Jesus was going to die on the cross. And with that comes his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. That's phase one. Phase two is what we see this week. It's what the disciples will do once Jesus is gone. And phase three is next week, it's the ongoing mission of the church. But the issue running throughout is that none of these phases of the plan look particularly impressive. With this outside view of things, we might think it's all a bit odd. Uh, It's not going to work. Is there even any joined up thinking? Well, the point of being invited into the planning room and listening to the prayer is to calm our fears. As the father and the son talk about their plan, we should be interested and reassured and excited about what is in store. So today we're looking at verses 6 to, 10, uh, six to uh, 19. It's phase two of the plan and we're going to see two things. Firstly, that the disciples are the result of the mission of Jesus And then that the disciples continue the mission of Jesus. So firstly, the disciples are the result of the mission of Jesus. But before we get into the text, let me um, let me ask this. What should we uh, what should we consider to be a good outcome for a missionary or an evangelist? You know, the sort of person who gives their life to telling people about Christianity. What are we hoping for? Here's a few examples. First, uh, William Carey, he was considered to be the first missionary to India. And by the end of his life, he'd apparently led 700 people to Christ. That seems pretty good to me. Then uh, Jim Elliot, many of us will have heard of Jim Elliot. He was trying to reach a tribe in the Amazon, but he was killed without any converts. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's Billy Graham. Millions responded to his call. So what should we consider a good outcome? Well, then what should we consider a good outcome if the missionary was the son of God? Because that's what's going on in the gospel. The son of God came into the world to tell people the good news of how to be saved. And how successful was he? Well, Jesus got 11. He left behind 11 disciples. Now, technically, it's not quite true. We know that there were other people who who came to believe at different times, people like uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. But but the thing is, we don't get told anything more about them. We don't know what happened to them. The gospel leaves us with these 11. Judas has gone 
and the 11 are left. And these 11, they're quite ordinary men. I don't think there was anything particularly special about them. There was mostly fishermen. There was a tax collector. Others we're not sure about. Um, There was certainly no one special. There was no priest converted. There was no governor. You know, no one to get really excited about. So we could say, is that all you managed, Jesus? And I think Jesus would say to us, yep, just those 11. But I'm happy with that. And let me tell you why. And in these verses, Jesus describes them. Not who they are, but what he's done for them. And it's huge. It's just a few but he's done the most momentous thing ever. It's the ultimate case of quality over quantity. Let's look at the description, verses 6 to 10. Verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So these 11 are the ones given by the Father to the Son. They were God's chosen people from before time began, his special possession, and he gave them as a gift to his Son. So, you know, they can't be that ordinary. Verse 7, Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. So these 11, they've also received a gift. They've received the words of God. The words that the Father gave to the Son, the Son then gave to them. And this is the gospel message, the truth about how to know God. They, they, rather than anyone else in the whole world, have been given this revelation by Jesus. This insight, this special understanding. And they've believed it. And they've received it. And they've accepted. And they've accepted who Jesus is. They've seen that he's from the Father. They've seen that he's given everything from the Father. And so this means that they now know the Father and the Son. And they've got it. They're they're in. They're They're the genuine believers. The first believers in Jesus. The first people welcomed Back into the family of God. The first to have eternal life. You see what Jesus has done for them is is almost too big to appreciate. The big thing that lots of us are thinking about now is this vaccine rollout, isn't it? You know, it's going at such a pace, isn't it? But right at the beginning, it was just a few people who were vaccinated. You know, it was, it, was, it was tested and it was made and it was tried on just a few people. But when it was found to work, it was so exciting, wasn't it? And why is that? It's because it was a breakthrough moment. The world faced this terrible problem. This, this, this pandemic was raging. And we were thinking, is there a way to stop it? And then we found this vaccine. It worked on just a few, and it was the breakthrough moment. And we know many, many more would be saved too. But you see, there's an even bigger problem that the world faces. It's being separated from our God. 
Last week, Pete described the story of the Bible as one about knowing God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they knew God, but then it was lost. And all of humanity since then has been distant from God. Yet when Jesus came, he revealed God to those 11. He brought them back, back into the family. And it was our breakthrough moment. The first and many more were to come. So the disciples, they were the result of the mission of Jesus. And the lesson for us is like last week, will we see things how God sees them? Last week it was the cross, if you remember. It looks a disaster. It looks shameful. But Jesus says, this is my hour of glory. This is how you come to know God. And this week it's the disciples. They look like an underwhelming bunch. And only 11. But Jesus says, these are my people and I have brought them to know God. And in fact, verse 10 says that he receives glory because of them. So we've got these two really unexpected sources of glory, the cross and these 11. So will we see things as Jesus sees them? This affects how we view the disciples today. I'm going to say a fair bit more about that in my second point. But but the main thing is that we've got to see that they are very, very important people. We mustn't have a low view of the disciples. These are the hand-picked few, the, the result of the mission of Jesus. But also more generally, I think this, is, uh, this, this affects you know, how we view the cross, how we view the disciples, but how we view ministry. How we view things in the Christian, Christian life. What do we value? What do we think is impressive? It's not numbers converted. It's not big names being converted. God's glory can be seen in the small and the unimpressive and the weak. You know, we don't need to go comparing missionaries. We don't need to compare Jim Elliott, William Carey, Billy Graham. They were each faithful servants of God. But we can get excited when each individual comes to Christ. When just one comes to know Jesus, it's the most amazing thing ever. The magnitude of it. Another sinner welcomed back into the family of God. That's something to get excited about. Now, secondly, the disciples continue the mission of Jesus. They are the result of the mission of Jesus, and they continue the mission of Jesus. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You know, the prospect before them is quite daunting, isn't it? You know, Jesus says he's going to die, but then he's going to rise again. We're thinking, brilliant. But then he says, I'm going to leave. After just 40 days, I'm going to leave. And that is not ideal. They'd probably like it if he just stayed. 
Wouldn't that be impressive? A man who died and then, and then raised again and, and then never died, but just established his kingdom, this, this great kingdom, a strong kingdom expanding throughout the world. Yeah, I, you know, I could get on board with that. But no, he's leaving. And he's not even leaving behind any writings. You know, great religious leaders, they should leave some writings of theirs for people to read. But no. He's just leaving these 11. And Jesus says, well, you're the ones. You're going to carry on my mission, travel around, preach, tell people about me, and and write it all down. That's the plan. Well, you can imagine how they're feeling. Puzzled, scared, uncertain. So Jesus prays for them. In their presence. And this would be such a relief to hear. Look at what he prays. Now look, there's an awful lot here. Uh, I think the big picture is he's praying that by the power and protection of God, they would be able to continue the mission once he's gone. That they'd be able to continue the mission once he's gone. Verse 11. Jesus says he's leaving. But the disciples are remaining. And so he prays and he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. They're in a hostile world. And and up until now, Jesus has been protecting them. But now he asks the Father to take over. Because you see, he leaves them in, in quite a tricky situation. Look at how he describes their situation. Look at how he describes them in relation to the world. There's, there's lots of prepositions. These are all the ins and ofs and intos. Lots of these sorts of words with relation to the world. Um, it starts actually in verse 6. The disciples were given to Jesus out of the world. You know, they were the special few who were picked out from the world Uh, This world that was distant from God, but God has chosen them to be given to Jesus. They They were picked out of the world. But then verse 11, Jesus is, is leaving the world, but they are still in the world. Those selected out of the world, they will physically remain there. They are in the world. And that's the point in verse 15 too. Jesus isn't asking that they be taken out of the world to come with him, that is, but they be protected while still in the world. So they were chosen out of the world, but they remain in the world. Two more prepositions, really important ones. Uh, Verse 14, and actually verse 16 as well, but uh, verse 14, Jesus says they are not of the world. They are different now. They're, They're a different kind of person. And that means they will be hated. It's what people do, isn't it? We, we turn against people who are different. And, and the world really turned against the disciples. Like they turned against Jesus. Because they are in the world, but they are not of the world. They're different. And that's why they need this protection. And the protection is not sort of stopping from all danger, all harm. We know the disciples, they faced uh, terrible persecution. Many of them were killed. But it's protection 
that they might keep going in their mission. The mission will not fail. And this is where we come to the final preposition. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. They are being sent back into the world, back into hostile territory. Like Jesus was sent by the Father into the world, Jesus sends the disciples to continue the mission into the world. So did you see their situation? It's a tricky situation. They've been chosen out of the world, but they remain in the world. They are not of the world, but they are sent into the world. It's the disciples continuing the mission of Jesus. And so the prayer is for protection. But then it moves from protection to preparation. I think that's where the prayer kind of ends in in verse 17. Preparation for their mission. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, the word sanctifies is a Christian word. Many of you will, will know it, will use it. Often we'll use the word sanctify for this sort of journey of becoming more holy. Sin being removed from our, our lives, that sort of thing. But that's not quite the sense of sanctify here. Here, I think sanctify means being set apart for God. Set apart for his special use. And, and the idea, I think, from the Old Testament is of um, special implements in the temple, which would have been set apart for special use. You can imagine like the tongs for sort of presenting the offering at the altar, you know, only to be used for that purpose. They're, they're, they're sanctified, the consecrated uh, special tongs. You know, in our lives, we'll have many uh, things that have special uses, maybe our our uh, you know special cutlery that we only use for the fanciest of dinners, or or you might have some special shoes that you you only wear at the, on the smartest occasions. Um, well, in the temple there were these these special implements set apart, holy, sanctified, and Jesus he prays for his disciples to be set apart for God's use, his special implements. But, you know, perhaps even it could be his special forces. That might sort of resonate a bit more with us. His, his special forces, his elite troops sent behind enemy lines. They'll go into the hostile territory to complete a special mission. And so these disciples, they've been chosen and set aside and now prepared for this very special mission. Prepared by his word, that is his teaching, prepared by the truth. And they will go out and do this mission, continuing the mission of Jesus. And so Jesus' prayer, it's basically, Father, please, please get them ready for this mission. Please protect them from the onslaught they're going to receive from the world and equip them to go out and do our work. And how do you think the disciples would be feeling as they hear Jesus pray this? I think that fear and that doubt and that uncertainty, I think it would be replaced with joy. This 
really is the next phase of the mission of Jesus. We're going to go out and we're going to do it. And it might be hard, but the Son has asked the Father to protect us. And the Father, he always does what the Son asks. So we're going to do it and we'll be okay because the Son has prayed to the Father. And how do you think the first readers of John's Gospel would have felt reading this prayer? You know, the people who received the letter as it was circulated, well, you know, maybe there might have been some debate about the disciples. You can imagine that, you know, some disagreements about whether they should believe everything that the, the disciples say, or, or maybe some disappointment that the disciples aren't more impressive leaders of the church. But rather, they, they, they read this and they see that the disciples are their connection with the mission of Jesus. And so they, they accept the disciples and they accept their writings. You know, these writings that perhaps you know, people weren't that keen on, maybe not as impressive as the other writings of the great philosophers of their day. But they realize that these are the writings they've been given. And as they embrace their ministry, they'd, they'd be building on it, wouldn't they? You can imagine, uh, you know, some of the early readers of this letter, they, they, they're building on the work of the disciples. So maybe they might invite their friends. They say, oh, have you heard? Peter has come to town today. Do you want to come and hear him speak? Or have you heard? We've, we've got a copy of John's gospel. It's being read out today. Do you want to come and hear it? And wouldn't there be this joy? at seeing and receiving the mission of Jesus through the disciples. What a wonderful privilege for them. And I think this helps us in our response as well. How do we view the disciples? As we look back and how do we, how do we view what they've left us in their writings in the New Testament? Sometimes we can have low confidence in the Bible. You know, an embarrassment at the Bible. It's just a book and, and, you know, people don't seem to like it that much. You know, when we say to someone, I really think you should read the Bible, it, you know, it can feel a bit embarrassing. Or, or when we answer a question with, well, the Bible says, you know, it can feel a little bit pathetic sometimes. We'd rather have some more miracles or some big name evangelists who can really convince people or just maybe a really tight argument that proves that it's all true. Why couldn't Jesus have left us something like that? Well, we need to adjust our expectations. Even the Bible follows the pattern of the cross. It doesn't look very impressive, but really it is the power of God. So, like the early church, we, can, we accept the Bible as the continuation of the mission of Jesus. And we build on it. We read it ourselves. Right now, with John's Gospel open, we are receiving the very work of Jesus in our lives. And we share the Bible with others. As you're telling someone else about Jesus, it's true there is nothing better you can do than open the Bible with them. And if you're investigating Christianity today, get yourself 
a Bible. It's amazing. It's pretty simple, but by the power of God, it is effective. Just look at what's happened. You know, those 11 men, these writings that they've left behind, they have changed the world. And they will continue to do so. They will change the world. They will change the church. They will change each one of our lives. This is the ongoing mission of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your mission to the world. Thank you for sending Jesus who died on the cross and rose and ascended to heaven. Thank you for sending the disciples who preached about him and wrote it all down so that we have their testimony too. And thank you for working in the world now and in our lives through your word, by your spirit, to the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.